So we are finishing up the first sermon, first Christian sermon ever in Acts chapter 2. You can turn there, Acts chapter 2. We're going to be uh, starting in verse 37 today. Um, starting in verse 37, so Acts chapter 2, 37. Uh, if you want to be turning there, I'm going to go ahead and open up with this. Has anybody ever been told a truth that shook your very foundation? Have you ever been told something you're like, it, you're, you're, the world dropped out from under you? Anybody told that? Anybody ever have your kids tell you one of those truths? I remember uh, the other day, uh, I think it was Crockett was talking to me and uh, I, I was just talking about trying to, to exercise, trying to do some stuff for my physical health. And he said, daddy, you're not that fat. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Man, that means so much. <laughs> just shakes you, right? Those truths that just get right into the, the core of who you are. So Peter's first sermon, he shook the listeners to their core. In this passage, we're going to get to see what we should do when the word reveals things in us. And you know what that is? We change. So before I keep going, actually, this isn't even my notes. I want to ask this. Anybody in here struggle with change? Just own it. Come on. Just, yeah. Woo. We as a people struggle with change. Now, we don't struggle with the change that we, uh, some of the things we choose, right? But there's change that is put on us is hard, right? And yet that is the very thing that God calls us to in his word on a daily basis. We are supposed to be in the word that it could change us every day. And we're change averse, right? That's why we struggle with the word sometimes, don't we? Because we read it and we're like, well, I don't do that. I don't want to do that. But that's what God's called us to do is to study it, to be changed by him. All right, let's start reading. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 37. I'm going to read the first uh, the couple of verses here. Now, when they heard this, so you remember this is his whole sermon, which he ends with Jesus Christ, whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. All right, so first thing here, he, they're, they're taught, as Peter's preaching this, they're cut to the heart. That's a word, it's, it's the Greek word, <laughs> let's see if I can do this, katanigason, and it means, it's an idiom, it literally means to pierce the heart, but it's supposed to make us think of to experience acute emotional distress, implying both concern and regret. This is an intense feeling. So they hear this message of Jesus Christ crucified. They see that the prophets, uh, that Joel was prophesying about Jesus. They see that David multiple times prophesied about Jesus to come and that Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. And then they're hearing, you killed him, the Messiah, the son of God. And they're, they're experiencing this intense emotion of bearing that burden of the weight of their sin. If you're a Christian, you've had a similar experience, Right? A moment where you realize that you are lost, blind, guilty, and dead in your sin. And the weight of it hit you. You realize, I need Jesus. But this should also continue to happen to Christians as we continue to study the word or listen to sermons. As we see more areas of our life that need to be changed to look like Christ. Did you know that the word of God is supposed to cut you? It's supposed to cut. Ephesians six seventeen says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. God's word is a sword. What do swords do? Cut. Hebrews four twelve through 13. 
For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we, to whom we must give account. You see, there's nothing that is hidden from Christ inside of you. And his word is a sword that is piercing and cutting. And you know what it's cutting off? Your old self. The flesh that's still clinging to us. As we study God's word, it's supposed to be cutting off the old man, the old woman that Christ changed us from being. In fact, we see Jesus in his glorified state in Revelation 1.16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a, a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was, shine, was, the, uh, was like the sun, shining in full strength. Jesus in his glorified form is an awesome, scary, fearful sight. Because out of his mouth is the word of God. And it is a sword coming out to pierce down to, to soul and spirit, to divide, to show us who we are. To expose the parts that aren't supposed to be there and cut them out. The word of God is supposed to cut. God's word should encourage us where we are striving for him. But it must also cut us where we're choosing sin over holiness. And then they say, well, what shall we do? So they're cut to the heart. They're hurting over this message. This sermon was destructive for them, right? And they said, what shall we do? The cutting of the word should always lead us to action. James 1.22 says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. The deception is when we are convinced that knowing is enough. We have to understand something. Agreeing is not the same thing as following. I can agree with something that's said and still change nothing in my life. And that does not mean anything for me. Does that make sense? I can hear a message and even say, amen and say, oh man, that was great. I can even pat somebody on the back and say, that was great. But if I walk out unchanged, that is useless to me. And I've been deceived. We get deceived into thinking if I'm entertained, that's been good enough. If I had something good come out of that made me think, oh, I feel good now. Or that was great. Or I, I never thought of it that way. I like that. And we're academically or in, uh, intellectually chained or challenged by it. And we're like, I, I like that. But no change follows. We have been deceived by Satan into thinking that's enough. The word requires change. And this is not just for those who need to surrender, for, surrender to Christ for the first time. This is for each of us. The word today should spur us into action. So they said, what do we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Repent. That's a Greek word that's it's a metaneo. Metaneo, and it means to change one's way of life as the result of complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. So repenting is not saying I'm sorry. Repenting is not thinking or realizing something you did was bad. Repenting is not feeling guilty. 
Repenting is changing everything about what you're doing because of a realization of who Christ is and who you are. It is an act of change. Repentance is a requisite part of salvation. You cannot accept salvation without acknowledging your need of it. And then turning completely away from the sin-filled life that you, had to li- that you did live in to a life that is filled with the Spirit. But here's the thing, that repentance is not a one-time thing, right? Most of you in here, I'm assuming, have come because you at one point have said to Jesus, I repent. I, I, I want you. I want forgiveness. I want to change the way I'm living. I want to live how you want me to live. But that can't only happen once. 2 Corinthians 7, 8, and 9 says... For, every, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Here Paul is saying, I'm, I'm thankful that the letter that I wrote hurt your feelings. I'm thankful that the message I gave you hurt your feelings, not because it hurt you. I don't want to hurt you. I'm thankful it hurt you because it led you to repenting and living more like Christ. Second Timothy two twenty four through 26 says, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them uh, repentance leading to a knowledge of truth and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So Paul is telling Timothy again what it means to be a pastor. First of all, he says, be nice to everybody. I'm like, well, I struggle with that. But part of this is keep teaching the truth because the truth can lead people to repentance. It might hurt them. It might hurt feelings. It might be a struggle. And sometimes that correction has to be direct saying, hey, this is wrong. But you do it because our goal is that God would grant people repentance, change to be more like him. We see one of the letters that Jesus writes to a church in Revelation. We've done, I've done the study a couple of times. But if you remember this one, this is to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2, 4 through 5. He, get, he tells them, there, hey, you're great. You have great doctrine. You have great standards. You don't follow this, these bad doctrines over here that a lot of people are falling into. You're doing some good stuff. But in verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I've said this before. I've heard this term before. Anybody ever heard the, the, the phrase, God's not in the business of closing churches? Anybody heard that? I've heard that a, a lot. And one thing I tell those people is read Revelation. Because this is Jesus threatening to close a church that was unwilling to repent. He says, I will remove your church from its place if you won't repent and do what I've called you to do. Jesus would rather a church One church, not the whole church, not the universal church, but a local church die that is not pointing others to him, then let it continue to point people away. Does that make sense? It's just, it's love. And we struggle with it because we want to say, but I want to do it my way. And I want you to tell me it's okay. And he says here, no, repent and change. Your first act of of repentance is upon salvation. 
but that should not, but that should be the first of many. So I have a question then. When was the last time you repented? You sat down and looked at your life and said, I see in the word, there's things in my life that don't belong or there's not things in my life that should be there. I see it. I need to pray and ask forgiveness and I need to stand up, turn around and do something different. Repentance has been a forgotten act of the church of today because we like to be told everybody is fine right where they are. Can I tell you something? You're not. You're not, you are, you are justified by the blood of Christ. And so, yes, at the, at the end of time, you are good. His goodness is covering you. But I'm telling you this, you right now are still struggling in your flesh and with your old self, and you are not okay right where you are, and you need change. So when's the last time you repented? It says, repent and be baptized. That's a, a word, it's a Greek word, sounds a lot the same, baptizo. That means to plunge into or to be immersed in. So back in ancient uh, Greek, Koine Greek, uh, you would, uh, this word was used to describe drowning or sinking ships and even people who were in out of control debt. They were called baptized into the debt or baptized into the ocean the, the ship was or uh, um, somebody who drowned there baptized underneath the water. That, the word was a common word uh, to be used that way. Christian baptism is the plunging or immersing of someone into water who has believed in Christ as their Savior and Lord and repented of their sinful life. All right, I want to make sure we clarify something here. Baptism is not salvific, and what that means is it doesn't save you. We can see this because you look at the thief on the cross, right? What did Jesus say to him when he said, uh, when he repented? Today I will see you in paradise. Did Jesus say, hey, hop off the cross real quick and dunk yourself, then get back up here and then I'll see you? That was not required. Romans 10, 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I don't think Paul left off and also get baptized and then you're saved. Salvation is something that is not of works at all. Jesus saves us when we confess and believe, surrendering to him. That is when salvation happens. But baptism is, just because it doesn't save you does not mean it's optional. It is a command to be baptized. So I have another question. Have you been baptized? What's stopping you? Now, if you're an adult in this room and you've been attending church for a long time, you're probably saying, it's embarrassing. I've disobeyed for 15, 20, 30 years because I never did it. And it's embarrassing to have to walk in front of others and do this. And I want to say, I think you're fearing the wrong people. Because God's command is so much more important than your looks in front of anybody else. And if you need to be baptized, do something. He says then, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And forgiveness is the word that means to remove the guilt resulting from wrongdoing. Who in here hates admitting they're wrong? Oh, come on. There's more of you than that. Point to somebody. Ashley's pointing at me. Um, oh, I hate it. I hate being wrong. I hate it so much. Something happened yesterday. I can't even remember what it was, but we were looking at some, Oh, <laughs> this is, is where Dion's house is. Dion, where you at, man? I was trying to find your house. And uh, yeah, I know. Sorry, I'm a creeper. Um, and I was convinced. I was convinced I knew what subdivision is. And Ashley's like, no, it's not. And I, I knew this where it was. And then uh, she, she asked him where it was. And so we looked it on Google, Google Maps. And I just closed my phone real quick and walked away. 
I didn't want to be wrong. I hate being wrong. We hate being wrong because we're so arrogant, aren't we? We are so arrogant. We love thinking we know everything. We've got it figured out. We've got all the stuff done. We love thinking we're doing all the right stuff. Why are we so slow to ask Christ and others for forgiveness? Because we hate being wrong, but we're commanded to. And in Christ's ultimate example of forgiveness, it leaves us no room to withhold forgiveness from anyone else. If Jesus would forgive you of everything you've ever done, ever thought, ever felt that was sinful, what right do you have to not forgive someone else? Because there's no one that sinned more than I have. For the forgiveness of sin, sin is the Greek word hamartia. Literally means to miss the mark, so it's an archery term, you, you miss what you're aiming at. It means to act contrary to the will and law of God. So the target, only God can set the mark that we're supposed to aim for. Even though we contend for this all the time, don't we? We like to contend over what we're supposed to be aiming for. We like to take control of it, but we have to submit to the word of God. And our war with sin can only begin after Christ saves us. Without Christ, we're slaves to sin. Romans 6, 20 through 23 says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's the thing that we were slaves to it. So in, in salvation, that's the only time that we're set free from the, that slavery. We're able to pursue righteousness in Christ. But though we're no longer slaves to sin, we still return to our chains voluntarily. Is that not sickening? Think of that in a physical thing. Like imagine being enslaved somewhere, put in prison and shackles and chains, being a, a, a just completely owned by something else. Do you think you would go back and try the shackles on just to see what they felt like? Then you go back and be like, oh man, I missed the, the way they sounded when they hit the floor when I was laying down at night on the concrete. And yet, that's what we do with sin. We walk right back to it and be like, man, I, I like the way that felt. First John, oh, so this is our war with flesh. First John 1, 8 through 10 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So here's the thing. Who in here still has sin? And, and, and lying is one of them. That's fine. Um, <laughs> we sin. So what did God call us to do? Make a habit of coming before him and, for, and asking forgiveness, confessing, saying, I've done wrong, asking him to forgive us, and then living that repentance out by changing what we've been doing. So then you'll receive the Holy Spirit. This happens immediately upon salvation. Romans 8, 9 through 11 says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. 
But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. All right, I'm gonna read verses 39 through 40. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. All right, we're gonna break this down just a little bit. This gospel is for you, but it's not only for you. First of all, he says it's for your children. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Make sure I get this stuff right. I'm going to speak to you guys as a father. Fathers, we have failed. Most studies show that over the past three generations, nine out of ten children raised attending church will abandon the church right after high school. Nine out of ten. Those same studies show opposite statistics for children who are actively taught the word by their fathers. Nine out of ten will stay. So who has failed? Fathers. And I'm not devaluing mothers. I promise you my children would be in (laughs) disastrous state without my wife. But I am saying this, fathers have failed. We have failed to disciple our children. Are you just infuriating your children with works-driven religion? Or are you teaching them the word? Because you see, the thing is, parents, this is your job. Teaching the gospel to your children is not their job. Now they're going to assist you, but it's not their job. They're supplementing what you're supposed to do. The model that has existed for the last couple generations has failed. You want to know why? There are no professionals to send your children to. Does that make sense? There's no spiritual professional that doesn't exist. We have people that are gifted that are uh, doing incredible stuff. My kids cry when they miss the uh, 10 o'clock Sunday children's stuff. They, they cry. They hate it. They love being a part of what we're doing. But that's not their only form of discipleship. In fact, that has to only be the supplement to what they're getting at home. God gave your children to you. Take that responsibility seriously. Worship with your children. Take time in your house to read the Bible together, to sing together. And please don't hear somebody that's holy and doing this perfectly saying you should start doing like me because I am just starting this path. I have failed for years at doing what I've been called to do. And we're still inconsistent, but we're trying to make this a part of our family life. We study together and sing together and pray together because our children need it at home. If, the, if their faith, if your family's faith is something that only happens in this building on Sundays, it's a joke to them. It's got to come home. But he also says, and those who are far off, I have a question. When was the last time that you shared your faith or have you ever done it? If you've not shared your faith with someone else or maybe not in how, however many years, What does that tell you about your own faith? 
He says, this is for your children and everyone who's far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What a wonderful relief that we don't have to convince anyone to believe in Christ. The Holy Spirit is working ahead of us, in us, and after us, convicting lost people of, our, of their sin. Our only mission is to speak the gospel to anyone that God places in our lives. He says, and, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. The, the word exhort means to beg or to plead. Peter continued to speak to these people, begging them to accept a gift from Christ. Are you begging your people to believe who Christ is? And he says to save themselves from this crooked generation. The world has been evil ever since sin entered it. But I've never experienced more accessible evil than there is today. We're living in a crooked generation. And the world, our children, need us to share this message. Read the final verse, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So they were baptized. Faith will lead to action or it's not true faith, right? Faith, repentance makes change happen. And they were added 3,000 souls. Who in here wants to see revival in your family, in our church, in our community, in our state, in our country, and in our world? Anybody want to see revival like that? Then start by living in repentance yourself. And follow the Spirit's conviction to tell this story to everyone you can. You guys bow your heads and close your eyes with me. I have a few questions to ask just as we wrap this up and then you respond however God leads you. Have you surrendered your life to Jesus for salvation? This requires you to believe in Jesus and everything he said he is and everything that he said he did. And for you to repent of your life of sin, asking for forgiveness. If you've not done that, I beg you to do that this morning. Second of all, have you been baptized? Don't let your pride stop you. Just because you might be an adult and have attended church for a long time does not mean you shouldn't be obedient and let someone know today that you need to. Are you spending time in the word for it to cut off your lingering flesh? Are you a doer or merely a hearer of the word? When was the last time you repented of your sin in your own life? And lastly, do you actually desire revival? Do you want Jesus to change the lives of the lost people in our families and in our community that need him? If you say yes, then who are you pursuing for the sake of Christ? Because you can't say you desire revival without doing something about it. Jesus, help us to be who you've called us to be. Lord, I love the end of Peter's message. There's these people feeling like they're left in a hopeless position of being the murderers of Christ. Peter gave them the hope of salvation, the hope of forgiveness by faith. And gave, God, he gave them the, the acts of repentance that were supposed to follow for the rest of their lives, continually letting the word show them sin and letting it cut it out, that they would turn away from it 
and live as you've called them. Help us to keep doing that too. Lord, not to be stuck in the way we want things, but to pursue change as we see it in your word. Because you've called us to be different. And none of us have arrived. In your name we pray. Amen. Please stand, respond however God leads you to.